Welcome to Embedded Insider. This is Laura Dolan, Technology Editor for Embedded Computing Design. I'm here with Rich Nath, Brand Director for Open Systems Media, and Brandon Lewis, Editor-in-Chief with Embedded Computing Design. So just to be clear, it's Executive Vice President, okay? Don't confuse me with the Brand Director, okay, Laura? My apologies, Rich. Who is this Brand Director? (laughs) (laughs) Well, we certainly have a brand that needs to be directed, but let's not talk about that now. Um, one of the things that I'm working on these days is the Embedded Technologies Conference, and in particular, a workshop that is what we call the the pre-conference, where we're having uh, representatives from all the low-power WAN media come in and uh, discuss their protocol, and then we're going to have a panel session at the end. So we're represented by SIGFOX, NBIoT, and LoRaWAN. Um, and there's really a lot going on in, in all of these technologies. That sounds really cool, but what is Embedded Technologies Conference? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Embedded Technologies Conference is a pretty horizontal conference that will look at all aspects of embedded and industrial design, from the hardware to the software and everything in between. So we're, so we're looking at how you program, um, the different issues with the boards, um, AI machine learning is a, is a very big topic for us, as is security. And it takes place in San Jose the week of June 25th. So uh, if you haven't booked your room, you need to do that immediately. Very good. Um, but back to your previous uh, topic. Yeah, actually, it's interesting that you brought up what was going on in the uh, LPWAN space because about a week ago, I was out in San Diego at uh, the Laura, Laura Alliance's all-member meetings. Um, and they had a day for members and, me- and media and uh, anybody really who wanted to join called LoRaWAN Live. And I learned a lot about some of the stuff that was going on with the LoRaWAN protocol, which was pretty interesting. deals with um, how you're going to be able to deploy devices all over the world if you're a, a, an IoT device manufacturer, how users can uh, fiddle around with the protocol stack and make sure that, you know, if it's a mobile device that you know, they're able to comply with uh, different, different regions. Um, so that was really interesting stuff. Um, can we expect to see some of that at the uh, at, at Embedded Technologies Conference, Rich? Yep, we sure can. You you hit it right on the head there. Very good. Well, actually, um, we should probably find out a little bit more about this. What do you say, Laura? I agree. Joining us now, we have Derek Hunt, Director of Certification for Laura Alliance and Certification Committee Chair. He's going to help us see what's going on in the low power area networking space. Derek, thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. Hi, you're welcome. It's my pleasure. Howdy, Derek. Well, um, we got a couple of pretty interesting topics to cover here today. And a lot of this came out of uh, LoRaWAN Live in uh, San Diego that followed uh, the Laura Alliance's all-member meeting um, last week. And uh, I heard a couple of things that really piqued my interest. And one of them is the work that you're doing around um, regional parameters and how to make sure that uh, people working with uh, LoRaWAN are able to deploy devices and make sure that they operate um, correctly in all different parts of the world at different bands. So uh, can you give me a little bit of flavor around what's happening um, with that work within LoRaWAN's? Yes, certainly. Um, So obviously one of the key advantages of the LoRaWAN is that it operates in the ISM band or the unregulated band, depending on how you want to call it. Um, and that 
gives the benefit that you don't need to have license, you don't have to buy license, you don't have to own any spectrum to actually use the LoRaWAN ecosystem. But obviously with that, country by country or region by region, they all have their own view and their own regulations as to how you use that ISM band in terms of what frequencies, what power um, they use. But it also goes a little bit further than that, and they have slightly different regulations on how the bands themselves are made up. So frequency and power is one thing, but then you have um, the FCC sort of based North American style ones, which talk about dwell time and channels and predicted channels. And then you have more sort of the Etsy European sort of standard ones, which talk about duty cycle um, and those ones. So it's not just the frequency that changes from one country to another or from one region to another. It's a little bit about the way the protocol works in those systems. So from an alliances point of view, um, we have a, a separate dedicated team that's actually going through looking at all of the regulatory requirements in order to meet the needs of that ISM band wherever they are in the world. And effectively that sort of splits us then up into typically those sort of uh, countries and regions that follow the ISM band and, and sorry, follow the Etsy type styling and those that follow the FCC type styling in there. So in terms of what that actually means, so from obviously North American point of view, uh, there are different frequencies that are actually used in, in there, um, different power regulations as well. So what we've actually done and part of what the regulatory team do is actually produce effectively a specification which gives guidelines on how to operate the LoRaWAN in any of those territories. And there's a list at the front of it of almost 100 different countries, I believe, that talk about what you need to do in those particular ones. And so obviously as a device manufacturer, you have to be aware of what country your device is going to operate in to make sure that you're always complying with those regulations. Right. So uh, obviously that's a big headache. You know, looking at uh, developing a connected device and then deploying it all over the world with all these different regulations and all these different bands. So what within LoRa Alliance are you working on the, in the LoRaWAN protocol? You, know, you even said that the protocol itself may change a little bit um, to enable people to do, sort of the, you know, we talk about, um, you know, set and forget, uh, deploy once and, you know, it operates anywhere. Yeah, so obviously for the majority of devices, um, as you say, they are sort of set up and forget. So they will always be in one territory or the majority of devices are going to be in one territory. So for them, it's fairly straightforward. They can go to um, the LoRaWAN protocol and they can look at the regional parameters document. And from that, and from that, that gives them exact information about uh, for this particular country or region, what's the maximum output power they should use, what's the sort of typical channel plan that they should actually use for that. So on a country-by-country -country basis, they can get the information that they need in order to try and make sure that they comply with um, the regulatory ISM bands in whichever country they wish to deploy this in. The one, obviously, it gives you a little bit more of a challenge for is if you have sort of roaming devices that potentially can move from one area or one continent. And I sort of mix up the areas or countries and continents because when you look at the world, there are some countries that are part of a group or a unit and they tend to follow the same sort of standard throughout that. So for instance, in Europe, um, they're all following the, the Etsy regional plan. So any device in any of the countries in Europe, you can just pick up and roam quite happily from one to another and they will be fully compliant within that. 
when you start looking at uh, North America, uh, North America, Canada, and Mexico, then they're the same. Um, they follow the FCC, so movement of device within those areas is easier to do. Um, the interesting bit comes when you start looking at places like Asia and South America and, and other areas around the world where um, they sort of follow bits of both. So some will have uh, a more of an Etsy style view of them and others will have an FCC. And again, part of what we've done within the regional parameters group is define for those particular countries, not only what's the maximum output power, what's the channels, what's the frequencies you should be using, but also the spec goes further than that and says which type of protocol should you be using as well when you're doing that. So we started this by, that's fine if you've got a static device, but obviously if you've got a device that's moving around, um, and this sort of term worldwide wake up has come to play to sort of look at that. What you can always do with a device is make sure that you're actually listening. So if you're a device that's moving around and it may have been shipped from one continent to another, um, the key really to that is for it to be able to listen before it actually starts to do any communication. So once it's actually listened, it can start to listen to some of the devices that are around it, understand what frequencies are available to it, and then could potentially change and reconfigure itself to work with those frequencies. Now that's sort of clear um, if you have something that sort of ships worldwide, but the key thing to make sure that you comply with the standards, obviously, is that before you do any communication, you know what band and what frequency you're on, and then you can comply to whatever the regulatory uh, region dictates that you must do. So, I'm assuming so, that there's no way to do this such that you have to do something different for every country. You know, there's, there's a lot of countries out there who, who we want to be part of this and um, that sounds like it's, and, and, a, and a lot of these aren't the, aren't the huge players, so we're asking them to design something different for each, each of the various countries? Yeah, in most cases um, what you can actually do, and it, it basically just comes down to the firmware that you load onto the device. There's a little bit of difference between the frequencies, so sort of 915 is the North American and 868 is the European type one. So um, the antenna in most cases will work with both of those frequencies, although you don't get optimum performance potentially for either, so you'd probably tune your antenna to around the 900 mark. So if you've got a device that is going to need to move, then the best way and the easiest way would normally be just to put different, a slightly different variant of the software build on it that effectively codes it into that. If you want to build a more complicated one, then that's when you start looking at other ways of determining where you are and you effectively will start talking to the network then based on knowing, okay, I now know where I am and that could be you have a GPS on it that tells it where it is or it could be that it's listened to what's going out over the airways and from that it's determined where it is so it can then switch to the right band. So it's really a matter of how complicated or easy the devices are. The very simple ones, the simplest way would be with probably two different builds of firmware. The more complicated ones, you could then put in more intelligence into the device and allow it to decide which region it's in and therefore which frequency bands and power to use. Very good. Is, is that, um, you know, the, the ability to be flexible that way, is, is that uh, what Laura, uh, the Laura Alliance and the folks over there uh, working on LoRaWAN, um, are terming modes, you know, ABC, you know, being able to hop back and forth? No, the modes are something slightly different. So um, 
depending on the type of operation that you have for the end sensor, if it's a typical low-powered battery sensor, and it may be, say, a temperature sensor that you only really need, it only really needs to send data very infrequently, and it's not really bothered about listening other than a few configuration changes or whatever, so it doesn't really need to be talked to very often. So for that, um, you would use what is the standard class, which is basically class A. And class A is the one where the device doesn't need to do any signaling or handshaking with the network. It basically just wakes up, sends whatever data, a couple of packets of data that it needs to send, which could be the temperature sensing, um, and then effectively goes back to sleep and it opens up its receive window after one second or two seconds to see, oh, is there a message coming back for me? And if there's not, it just goes back to sleep again. So these are typically sensors and the sort of things that really most of the communication is an uplink communication, and there's a few occasional times you want to talk downlink. So every device, when it first joins the network, starts as a class A device. After that, you have the ability then to put it into either class B or class C. Um, and I'll explain a little bit about what those are. So for Class C network, this is typically where you would have the device probably powered by mains. So things like street lighting controllers are an ideal use case for those. And basically what we're saying is they don't have to be quite so concerned about saving every last drop of energy from that. So basically, while they're not doing their communication, as if they have a fault or an alarm they wish to send up, they would send up the message just in the same way as a normal Class A device would use. But because they're mains powered, they don't have to conserve energy, so therefore they might as well just be listening all the rest of the time. And the C really is, Class C is continuous listening. So when you're not worried about energy, and that means that basically any time you want to talk to the device, you can immediately just send a message to the device, uh, and the device will already be listening ready to do it. So that's sort of for the that's for the device that's mains powered and no, no real worries. And you can then have sort of instant communication with no delay to it. You can just send it, turn the light on, and it'll do it straight away. So there's another class of devices in between, which are battery backup, but you still want to have regular times that you can actually talk to this, or low latency, or slightly lower latency when you can talk back to it. So for this, um, we put the device into what we call class B. This takes a bit more organizing from your gateways because the gateways actually have to send out beacons and they send out a beacon roughly every 64 seconds. With that, then devices listens, wait, listens for when the beacon is and it gets told as part of that process, okay, this is your beacon. Now I'm going to talk to you five seconds later, 10 seconds later, 20 seconds after that beacon. So wake up and listen to a message that potentially might come down to you 10 or 20 seconds after the beacon. So the device would then listen to the beacon, go to sleep, says, okay, I've got to wake up in 10 seconds and listen to my message, listens to see if there's a message for it. If not, goes back to sleep again, then wakes up after 20 seconds after the beacon and says, is there a message for me? Ah, yes, yep, this is, do whatever it needs to do. And it can then react on it and act on it and then effectively go back to sleep again. So this is, sort of a battery or more power optimized way of you being able to talk to the device when you want to talk to it. And that's effectively what class B is. So all the devices can effectively switch between the different classes. They all join the network as a standard class A device uh, and then effectively get told either through uh, there to turn to class B or to class C 
really depending on what type of application it is that they're trying to address and whether it's battery or mains powered. Very good. Um, real quickly, uh, one last one last question for you, Derek, is uh, you touched on worldwide wake up. Um, so uh, I know that's something to, uh, that addresses a lot of the challenges you touched on before, you know, between the different regions and the different bands that everybody's working with. Um, one of the things that we don't typically uh, think about is that because of the different frequencies that everything's operating on, um, a gateway would probably have to be positioned at different um, distances from one another, or gateways would. Um, and that has a big effect on you know, the power and the, the transmit power from devices and on and on. It's sort of a waterfall effect. Um, what's going on with Worldwide Wake Up with inside uh, uh, the LoRa Alliance and with the LoRaWAN protocol? So there's a couple of things. We've sort of discussed a little bit about the Worldwide Wake Up. Um, in terms of the architecture of LoRaWAN and the, the sort of gateways, um, it's almost in the unique position where if you have certain areas where you suddenly find, yep, I've deployed this network into a city and I can see that there's a particular parking lot, say, over here that's particularly busy and there's lots of sensors in there sending information back to it. Um, the advantage you can get with the LoRaWAN is basically you put a gateway directly where that source of data is. And what happens is those devices communicate with that local gateway. There's a mechanism within LoRaWAN called ADR, which is the Adaptive Data Rate Control. And effectively what that says is that gateway sees those local sensors to it. That information gets sent back to the network server. And what the network server then does is say, hey, hey, you guys, you're, you're very close to my gateway. I can see I have a really strong signal from you. So now I can individually go and tell every individual sensor to either reduce um, the power that it delivers or speed up the communication that it delivers so it's on the air less time. And that has a huge advantage then because the quicker the device can communicate, the faster the communication can be, the less time it's on air, so therefore it saves battery. Obviously, if it has to reduce its power and is told to reduce its power, then that's saving on battery as well. So where you have particularly high dense spots of activity, by putting a gateway local to those means you can have an enormous effect on the battery life and the, the longevity of it. But also it has a secondary effect that says, when you reduce effectively the power or the transmitted range because you've increased the data, it means that the signal from that gateway is then not traveling as far and doesn't need to then cause any interference with other gateways which may be around the rest of the city. So that easy deployment of gateways where you get hotspots can make a huge difference to um, how you would cope with multiple areas. The gateways themselves are sort of fortunate that they don't get too much involved in this sort of worldwide issue because a gateway is a static environment. So it would normally have been designed specifically for one of the regions or the others. But this ability for every individual device and every individual device is controlled separately in terms of its output power and its uh, speed of transmission means that you can have a, ne a network that very quickly adapts to changes in its environment. So if you suddenly have a gateway go faulty, um, that's picked up on several gateways, but then you might want to say to the end device, okay, now start transmitting um, with a little bit more power because that local gateway that you used to see has gone down and temporarily it can then out increase its output power to be picked up by other gateways in the network. 
And when that gateway is then restored and comes back online again, uh, the device gets told, okay, you've got the gateway local again now. You can reduce your power down again and go back to the settings that you were on before. And that ease of deployment and ease of use is a really powerful feature within the LoRaWAN ecosystem that actually helps create networks first in the first place. So you can look at an overlay network and then where you get the dense areas, just put up extra gateways to cover that. And it makes it a really simple um, network planning type issue then as well. So you don't have to spend a long time planning all your different frequencies and where you're going to put each different frequency band. That's awesome. It's very efficient. Thank you, Derek. Uh, if you want to learn more about some of LoRaWAN certifications, they will be appearing at the Mobile World Congress, February 25th through 28th in Barcelona. You can also find out more information on their website at loraalliance.org. That's L-O-R-A-alliance.org. Thank you so much again, Derek. Yeah, thanks a lot, Derek. No problem. You're welcome. Really good stuff there, uh, Laura Alliance. Um, speaking of another Laura, Laura, what's uh, up with the news this week? <laughs> Well done, Brandon. Uh, well, the Jet Forum is introducing the OpenD for wireless software development. Um, it's an important moment for, the, for wireless developers all over the world right now. Yeah, you know, uh, Deck Forum's been making a little bit of noise lately after a long time of uh, sort of flying under the radar, especially with some of the smart home devices becoming more voice-enabled. I know that Deck Forum has been working on uh, some technology and standards work there, so people should keep an eye out. Sounds good. Uh, Intrinsic ID is going to be an embedded world. Hmm. Um, they're going to be doing a presentation on secure IoT device management, and they're going to be exhibiting with NXP and Renaissance. Oh, very nice. You know, Intrinsic ID, um, I just came across them the other day because I was looking at secure IoT provisioning, and they were actually one of the first companies uh, to develop a technology that would allow uh, manufacturers to implement a secure ID into a device then that, carry that ID through the manufacturer and all the way into the marketplace. Um, so be interesting to meet up with them there at the show and see what's going on on the security front. Yeah, they're going to be exhibiting um, all three days of the show uh, from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. So go and check them out if you're attending Embedded World. Very good. What else is on tap? Well, Altra SOC is announcing support for Western Digital and RISC-V and the Omni Extend Cache Coherent Internet. Hmm. You know, this is kind of uh, important because this is an announcement that surrounds the Swerve uh, core from Western Digital. And Swerve, if anybody's familiar with um, the RISC-V architecture, was one of the first commercially announced or available cores um, that WD is putting inside some of their storage controllers. Um, so this will be a nice barometer for those who may still be skeptical of RISC-V to see how the architecture takes off, but it's encouraging to see that Ultra SOC is um, building up some tools around it, so fingers crossed. Absolutely, and they're saying every storage product the company ships contains some kind of processor. So the company is committed to transitioning one billion of these cores to the RISC-V architecture. Very good, like I said, fingers crossed. Yeah. All right, so um, do we have something about Destin Show coming up? We do. Uh, we held a contest for Best in Show uh, for Embedded World and what products they have surrounding uh, the show this year. Yeah. Um, for those of you who are unaware, you should check out www.embedded-computing.com. Um, there we held a contest, um, well, there and in our minds, I guess, 
um, for the best products that will be displayed at Embedded World um, across categories include artificial intelligence, processing, um, security, development tools, uh, you name it. Uh, there are eight categories in total. Um, we have some of the nominees up now, but depending on when this podcast goes live, you may be able to catch the winners um, during the Embedded World conference. Um, so like I said, check out www.embedded-computing.com uh, to find out more details on the best products that are at Embedded World. Great. Thanks, Brandon. Later this year, um, we will be hosting the Embedded Technologies Expo and Conference in San Jose, California from June 25th through 27th at the McHenry Convention Center. If you'd like to learn more, go to www.embeddedtechcom.com. That's C-O-N-F as in Frank.com. Registration is open now. Very good. And as always, where can people uh, find out more information from us, Laura? Well, we are everywhere right now. Uh, you can go to our website, uh, www.embedded-computing.com. We are on Facebook. Go and like our page under Embedded Computing Design. We are on LinkedIn as well. If you go and like our page under Embedded Computing, we are on Twitter um, at embedded underscore comp, and that's embedded C-O-M-P. And we also have an Instagram. Wow. Do we have a Pinterest? <laughs> we should get a Pinterest. Our website looks like Pinterest. So why not? Actually, <laughs> We're already halfway there. Yeah. <laughs>